Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ten Across Conversations. I'm Duke Ryder. Resilience is a term most often associated with climate change, the evidence of which we've been witnessing across the country of late. From hurricanes to floods to fires, resilience is a critical element of adapting to a warming world. But what exactly is resilient infrastructure? What is a resilient community? And should we apply a resilience lens to our economic and social systems? My guests today are experts on these questions as they live them daily. Nicole Farini is the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of El Paso, Texas. Her responsibilities range from flood mitigation to affordable housing. Abana Ojitayo is Director of Housing and Community Resilience in Tallahassee, Florida, having previously served as Chief Resilience Officer. As the rest of the country grapples with the compounding crises of climate change and the pandemic, Nicole and Abena are working hard to ensure their communities can anticipate and overcome challenges and ultimately thrive in the face of adversity. Here's my conversation with two model public servants. So, Nicole and Abena, it's great to see you. I know you have extremely busy schedules, so I appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us. Um, thank you so much. You know, we've had the chance to get to know each other through various Ten Across projects. For example, you were participants in a collaboration we had last year with New America's Resource Security Forum, and I appreciate you uh, contributing to that. But with each encounter, I've been so impressed with what you do. And while some people might characterize where you operate from in your respective cities, Tallahassee and uh, El Paso, you're part of a city bureaucracy. Uh, I don't think it is anything like that. You managed to make public service appealing, empowering, and, and frankly, really cool. So it's a pleasure to hear from you and, and find out what you're doing. And to get us started, why don't you tell me something that's going on in either Tallahassee or El Paso that might be revelatory to our audience, something that could be on the positive side, could be a real challenge that you're dealing with. And Abana, why don't we start with you? Oh, man. <laughs> I was hoping to steal some ideas from Nicole. Um, well, we, before we just got started, we were talking about our code front that's coming. So it's scheduled for Thursday. And in case anybody cares, because they're in a particularly hot part of the country, or maybe they've already started experiencing some cold in Tallahassee, we're about to get our first one since May. Um, and what, where are we now in September, right in the thick of hurricane season for us. And so we're actually excited about that. And we schedule it and the new stations announce it when it's time to finally open our windows and get a cool breeze. Um, it's, it's such a welcome relief after a long, long period of time with, with just heat and humidity. Uh, but we are battling that 
the heat and hurricane and pandemic. And I'm sure we'll get a lot more into that. So that's what's happening in our neighborhood. So somebody out there is surely going to ask, Abna, what do you characterize as a cold front in Tallahassee in September? <laughs> Listen, we claim everything fully, and we say it with our chest. That cold front is bringing at least 79 degrees of cool air. Uh, maybe 50 in the night. If we can get to 50, that'd be great because we can open a window and give the AC a little break. Uh, but we, we welcome that. So that's parka and mitten we- mittens weather there. Okay, I got it. I got it. <laughs> Nicole, what's going on in El Paso that you would like to let us know about? Oh, my friend, there's always so much going on I know. in El Paso. I'll tell I you what, but I, there's two things that I would love to share with y'all. Uh, number one, it is officially the last day of summer and we are in mourning in El Paso. We love the summer here. Uh, (laughs) No, actually, maybe that's just me. But uh, no, two things in in all seriousness. Uh, First, some good news. Uh, As of today, uh, El Paso, Texas has reached herd immunity. Uh, We have over 75% of our population fully vaccinated. And we're very, very proud of ourselves. And the reason I think that that's important to share is A, it's relevant for the rest of the country in terms of how sort of how much of a discussion point this has become and a division point for, for folks in, in communities. And in El Paso, I think it's representative of what I've always said uh, demonstrates our resilience, which is our ability to come together uh, like familia, right? We're a family, we're a community, we protect each other. And that's what we did with the vaccine. And, and I think you see that reflected in our numbers and we're just super proud of that. So that's the good news. Um, well, not bad news, but on the, on the flip side, a challenge that we're dealing with right now is that we... We are again sort of a center point of an influx of uh, migration. Um, we uh, have received uh, just under 10,000 Afghan uh, refugees in our military base and, and, and we are um, hosting our guests and that's how we look at it. We are hosting our guests and making sure that they are comfortable and have everything they need as, we, as the, the federal government works to, to get them placed. And then, on top of that, uh, we are also receiving uh, uh, Haitian uh, migrants uh, out of the Del Rio area. They are uh, coming into El Paso. But again, true to form, it's a challenge, but we are putting our arms around our friends, um, our fellow human beings, and, and we're doing everything we can to um, help those folks along. And and people may not understand when you say our local military base, uh, they may not understand how large Fort Bliss is. Can you can you? Describe that in terms of scale relative to your city. 100%. So uh, Fort Bliss, Texas is the largest uh, domestic military base by landmass and only the second largest by population. Um, I don't know off the top of my head that number. I should, but I don't. Um, I will tell you that if you look at a map of the city of El Paso, uh, by landmass, you are looking at probably a full quarter of the 265 square miles uh, that represents our city. You, you can really see it. It's really a physical geographic presence. And there are tens of thousands of uh, people that uh, live and work uh, on Fort Bliss and, and engage with our city. So, so both your cities are extremely interesting in their geography and their demography and other things. But I was just thinking about that when you mentioned that you were accommodating refugees at Fort Bliss. You not only have that sort of city unto itself. And then you, of course, have a whole another country uh, that makes up a sort of binational city in El Paso. We'll get back to that in a little bit. So um, a few weeks ago, 
I had the opportunity in a very ten across way to talk to Henry Cisneros and Bill Fulton about infrastructure. And maybe you've seen their report that talks about bottom-up infrastructure, something that truly emanates from the community uh, and reflects their interests. And it looks like uh, there is going to be, let's hope, a bipartisan infrastructure bill that passes. And so I'm sure the two of you have been in many discussions about the kind of money that might flow to your respective cities. Uh, I, I, I think of an Abana quote that was from the New America session where you said something in the best way, give me the money and get out of the way. <laughs> meaning, <laughs> Girl, I, yes. Yeah, meaning we know how to spend the money most appropriately in a way that's probably most effective. So sure, we're, we're happy to have federal support, but allow us to determine how best to use it. So when you're having discussions about a potential influx of resources that to do some good things for your community, what have been the nature of those conversations? What do you think you would do with that money? Where's the flexibility and how would you like to apply it if you could? And Abana, why don't we start again with you? Yeah, I, I'm thinking back to when the American Rescue Plan Act came out and the announcement of the allocation. Our city government by May um, has we're already thinking through the plans, the potential projects, the ideas that were sort of in line and in queue. Um, and I think we were probably one of the earlier municipalities to adopt a plan. Our commission adopted a, a plan to distribute our ARP before we even got the check. Um, and that just goes to show, I, I think there are a lot of cities like us that have so many projects on the deck that if they were just funded, they could move forward. And so we were really excited about it. We put the majority of, of our funding in economic recovery, housing, and human service type activities um, right out the gate. Made some significant investment in housing stability for, for homeless individuals. Um, in fact, we did a lot of that before we even got the guidelines, which was coming piece by piece from the uh, Treasury. And we were grateful for it. But, you know, we had a couple moments where it's like, oh, so we can't do what we said we were going to do. We can pivot. But thankfully, we had some projects in place. And so it's the same thing is starting to happen with our um, the infrastructure plans. Some of the things we thought we could do with the ARP money might be a little harder. And so we're sort of putting it on the side in hopes of this infrastructure bill. We do a regular planning effort with uh, local mitigation and that's really on emergency management side, just thinking about projects that we can do to strengthen our infrastructure, to strengthen our assets, to strengthen the major industries in our community. And that stuff is like five years, 10 years. You know, We have sewer infrastructure plans with five-year outlook with specific projects already called out. And so when funding like that becomes available, we're just eager to kind of move through that list. It's not really a time where we sit and think, Oh man, what will we do now? You know, we got we have a project list lined up, so it's really exciting for us. And that's really what I meant, you know, earlier. Not so much that we don't want federal government involvement, but the the less restrictions you can put on these funding uh, sources, the faster we can mobilize because we do have projects lined up and ready to roll. And as was the case in our discussion with, with Henry and Bill, what you've already characterized is a almost redefining of what people might think of as infrastructure. I think a lot of people associate it with the hard infrastructure, concrete and steel, going into the ground, making roads, building bridges, whatever it might be. But without hesitation, you were already moving money and ideas around that flowed between what was really going to help people, 
there, whatever that service was that they needed. And yes, you, you mentioned some things that, that might, like sewerage and other systems. It's all of a piece the way you look at it. Is that right? It is. It really is. When we started talking about um, mitigation for the pandemic, I think nationally it was clear that housing stability was an important part of how we address this public health concern. And so we pivoted really to our bread and butter housing programs, preservation programs, but we also injected a significant new resource in homelessness, um, homeless prevention and rapid rehousing of people that are homeless. And uh, that also had this sort of um, tangential effect. The signal from the local level is, hey, the government is wanting to invest in housing. So real estate started adjusting accordingly. Um, construction uh, started adjusting in good and bad ways or stressful ways, I should say. But, you know, one of the best things a government can do is signal what it's wanting to invest in. And you see other people sort of rise to the occasion. And inevitably, you get the pieces, the soft program, the social services, but you also get the built environment. Everybody just sort of picks up on the queue once the investment starts to flow. And Nicole, again, both of you are such forward thinkers. That's why we we so enjoy talking to you and, and the way that you operate coincides with the way we imagine the Tent Across Project. What can you see and therefore how do you prepare for it? So I'm sure you have thoughts about, probably like Abana did, how to spend money even before you were told precisely how you could use it. I'm sure you began strategizing about that. So what are the things that you would like to apply that money to in El Paso? Yeah, so a couple of things. I, I mean, I, I could not agree with Avina more in terms of increased flexibility at the local level with federal support and overarching guidance is really what we need. Um, we need to be able to, you know, they're asking us to respond uh, with agility. So they need to give us the space to do that, to be agile. Um, I think that, you know, cities that had already been talking about resilience for many years and really looking at the types of projects that, can invest in, to Abana's point, you know, uh, economic development slash recovery, human services, housing, social services. If you were already talking about those things, you were already lined up to very easily be able to slide in with a list of projects um, that had been unfunded or underfunded for quite some time as this money came in. And you were very likely able to fit within the guidelines for the most part, because I agree uh, with Abana that it's been a little bit of a moving target and that's a little bit challenging, right? Um, one of the things that particularly municipalities of our size, uh, El Paso is considered a mid-sized city, deals with is management of risk. And I don't want to go too far into the weeds on that, but I will tell you that in receipt of federal funds, when you have a city our size, the investments you make have to be um, very clearly within the guidelines because the risk of having to return those funds to the federal government has to be averted. We could not afford to violate the rules and have to, you know, give that back that that would that would really cripple us. And so we have to be more conservative than cities that are, you know, for example, are much larger than us with much larger budgets that might be able to absorb that kind of thing. So that that feeds into the decision making process. But um, just taking a step back, you know, we we've been talking about an inclusive and resilient recovery since, you know, I don't know, the, the pandemic, uh, the emergency was declared, I think, uh, in early March. So in late March, we were talking about an inclusive and resilient recovery. So we started planning at that point. So we very much did that. We had a number of projects focused on the same things that I'm going to mention, you know, looking at uh, how are we uh, 
sort of establishing a greater sense of housing stability. And that ranges everywhere from keeping folks in their homes to helping the folks that are homeless uh, get placed. And rapid rehousing is a huge, huge investment for us, um, making sure that we have surge capacity shelters. Um, that's another thing that we learned over the course of COVID where you know you think you have that capacity, but you have to understand how that can surge. And how do you sort of remain agile in terms of how you're funding those services and, and not have necessarily uh, empty or vacant facilities in between, right? And that's just not the case. There's a 100,000 different uses that you can apply uh, in the interim and then be able to flex and, and adapt to whatever the crisis is. And so we're definitely investing in those types of solutions that are as agile as we need to be. And, and, and the typical solutions don't do that. Before you leave the topic of housing, because both of you brought it up, on both ends of the spectrum, I think, those who are unhoused and, 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 and getting them into a better situation, and then on the other end of the spectrum, in a Texas kind of way, you have a place like Austin, where the housing problem is cost because of the influx of people who have different uh, income variables and other things. And you two probably experience a bit of that as well. I think both of your cities are very attractive. Um why do you think housing across the board, because I hear it a lot, has become such a, a topic of discussion and the reasons why it be, has become something of a, a crisis point in so many cities? Is, is it the market? Is it some uh, the disparity that we see uh, out there for all kinds of reasons and services? What, what is it about housing right now that you think brings it to the fore? Apana. Sure. I, I think... There are a couple of reasons with this particular pandemic. I remember early on the messaging um, about how we make it through this was to stay home. And so as soon as you said stay home, the question became, well, what if you don't have a home to stay in? Or what if where you stay is not actually a good place for you? What if where you stay is killing you, whether it's through interpersonal um, or relationship issues and which led to conversations around mental health? Or if it was that you didn't have a place to stay at all, and so then you became a risk to the people around you, or you became a vulnerable to um, exposure to the virus because you have to be transient. Um, so I think early on, some of the words that we were using to encourage people to take good action to mitigate the spread signaled, oh, wait, <laughs> we don't, not everybody can actually help in this way or contribute to that particular solution. But I also think just nationally, it's been bubbling up, right? I mean, affordable housing has, a, has been a, a, on the top of mind um, of many different uh, communities and, and different sectors for a while because we see the intersection. Uh, no matter what subject you're talking about, if somebody is not stably housed, your solution is less than, um, I need a sophisticated way to say it. It just won't work, right? I mean, and we think about it at, at all social classes for uh, employees and local government. You know, one of the leadership challenges we all had, all the other directors was, what is going to be our workforce preservation? How do we continue to provide critical services for a community that's depending on it and, and expects it to happen, even if there are shutdowns in businesses and restaurants? Nobody said government can shut down and nobody expects it. And so our employees have to figure out how to do that. And I know my team quickly pivoted to remote work. Um, but remote work meant me looking at every employee and saying, hey, is this actually possible for you? 
could you actually do this work at home? And how much are we burdening you with this new responsibility at home? How safe is your home? You know, how's your broadband access at home? Do I need to buy you new equipment? So everything just started to center around home. And, and then you start to unpack some of the issues that have been longstanding. Um, when you talk about, Nicole, equitable recovery, that's the, the heart of equity. I think you see it measured most starkly at home. When we are at work, we can all look the same and talk the same and appear to have the same circumstances. But when we go home, that's when we really come to grips with or are faced with the reality of our, of our circumstances. Um, and so this, this pandemic has invited us into people's homes and it's invited us into the issues and the challenges at home and has made it its way up to a public policy. That You are so right about that. Seeing people in their domestic settings, some of whom are better prepared to get on Zoom or not, uh, and maybe even think largely about that and organize the books on the shelves behind them by color or whatever it might be. But we now have an understanding of our fellow employees, our colleagues, that we didn't have before. Uh, because of what we see behind them or around them or the young people that walk in and uh, interrupt them or whatever else it might be. So it has been a window into the country and into the domestic lives of people, thus making the home another piece of infrastructure that we never quite thought about in the same way. And, and so did you want to add to that, Nicole? Yeah, exactly. So, so I would just say that um, home is a concept that I think um, most people take completely for granted. Um, you know, the way we were just discussing about, you know, uh, being able to see into someone's home and are they able to work from home? What are their living conditions? Do they, are they healthy conditions? Whether we talk about, uh, you know, medically healthy or mentally healthy, whatever that is. Um, I think we start to take that concept for granted and COVID didn't allow us to do that anymore. Right. We really had to take a look at across the board. And that was one of the first things that we did in El Paso was shelter in place. Well, what if you have no place? And so that was how we had to move very quickly to sort of address the needs of those individuals. But it caused us, it wasn't about that emergency response necessarily. It caused us to look at the issue of homelessness differently and how we establish home for a variety of individuals with a variety of different needs. And I'll go back one step, something that I've said for many years that I think really uh, COVID put an exclamation mark on is that you can't, as a city, only be resilient to the vulnerabilities that you can see, Right. You have to also be uh, resilient to the vulnerabilities that are hidden within your successes. Now, what do I mean by that? When you have a city, um, and actually one of my favorite cities to use as an example is the city of Austin, because I think Austin is a beautiful, vibrant, amazing city that had tremendous economic success over the last you know, two decades, right? But they were not resilient to the housing and affordability challenges that were hidden inside of that economic development success. And so you have to learn to balance those things and see past um, sort of the silver lining, right? The shiny front and say, what are the challenges that face us behind that? And how can we really um, address those things equitably for our people? And so those are some of the things that um, I, 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 it's a little bit odd for me to say this, but, you know, COVID didn't create our challenges. It exacerbated them and it brought them up to the fore in a way that we can no longer as a country, as, a, as states, as cities, as neighborhoods, ignore them. They're right in our face every single day now. And so I think that's why you're seeing, Duke, the, this real discussion about now, finally, housing is infrastructure. Home means something. 
And I think it's going to be up to us to define that in the future because it's going to be about more than the four walls uh, that surround you. So you, you've helped with, with a really good segue here by bringing up the word and term resilience, which can mean a lot of different things. And I think for most of us, as we hear it used in the media, it's affiliated with climate change. And it could have to do with seawalls or flooding or uh, maybe in the West fires at the moment or the drought that we're experiencing. And therefore, resiliency comes with some byproduct of climate change. And what are we going to do about that? But I think both of you are expanding that definition of resilience and linking it to the kinds of infrastructure, some of it social, some of it hard, uh, that we talked about in the previous few minutes. But, you know, Nicole, you were the first chief resilience officer of El Paso and part of a larger group of resilience officers. And it sounds to me over time working with you that you were at one place with the idea of resiliency and certainly developed a great plan for your city and have come to think of it a little bit differently over time and what should be the points of emphasis. Do you want to talk about that transition that you've made, if that's fair to characterize it as that? Absolutely. Um, So, you know, I became El Paso's chief resilience officer in um, December of 2015. And uh, at that time, I think I was like the fifth in the world, um, to do it. And, 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 and that actually, it sounds pretty cool, but at the, at the end of the day, it was actually really challenging because I would say, you know, good morning. My name is Nicole Freeney. I'm the chief resilience officer. And people go, what does that mean? Right. You know, <laughs> what is that? Are you the flood lady? The flood lady. That was, that was my favorite one is that I was the flood lady because El Paso had experienced a series lady. of floods, the hurricane lady. There you go. So to, to Duke's point, right. It was, it was about, Oh, uh, this is about climate change. And yes, um, climate is absolutely a, a vulnerability and a challenge that many cities are, are grappling with more and more around the world, whether you're a coastal city or not. Um, it's something that we all have to come to terms with. But something that I, I came to say very, very quickly was that resilience and sustainability are not the same thing. Resilience and climate action are not the same thing. Um, resilience is about a system or a community or a person's ability to adapt and thrive in the face of change. And that's something that I have not seen adopted around. People say, you know, crisis, shocks and stressors, whatever that is. And then they immediately go to the hurricanes or the floods or whatever that is. But when you saw those events hit a community, a community's resilience was tested primarily by their people's ability to um, uh, not only survive those events, but thrive in the face of them, learn from those things and start to create better housing infrastructure, start to create better resources for their community, start to create a better individual resilience for, for their community. And so with El Paso, what you've seen, Duke, and I, at least I think, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what you've seen me, the shift in my, my vocabulary is moving from just infrastructure and systems to people, to community. It's about how we respond. And, and there are, there, there's always going to be an infrastructure investment in making that happen. But the infrastructure investment is secondary to what we're doing with our people and for our people. And that's, I think, what has made El Paso strong. And I started the, this conversation with that. You know, achieving herd immunity in terms of the number of vaccinations that we've had in our community when last November we were, this is not a number one in a good way, we were number one in the world in terms of daily uh, uh, um, cases, positive cases, 3,000 a day is where we were last November. And today we are at herd, herd immunity. That resilience had nothing to do with climate. That resilience had nothing to do with physical infrastructure. That resilience had to do with our people's ability to come together and respond collectively. And that's where you've seen, I think, my language shift. 
Well, if I could move from the flood lady to the hurricane lady, uh, <laughs> Abana, you know, resilience as yeah. it's understood by your mayor and council and the community. How do you how do you use that term effectively? Yeah, I, I think we have to as resilience officers or just leaders in any organization is to be able to point people to a consistent message regardless of the situation and the changes that happen. I think as human beings, we can only process so much and we always need to be reminded of what matters the most, even as things change. So we've had to do that with shifting crises. Um, When it was hurricanes at first, that was the language we used to enter or to invite people into the conversation of resilience um, because it was a shock to our system. Um, But as soon as you start that conversation on hurricanes, as we did in Tallahassee, we also recognized, and for us, the, the phrase was always, who is vulnerable, right? Or, and how are they vulnerable? And we started talking about that from the beginning because crisis or not, um, somebody is always vulnerable to something. It could be that hurricane. It could be the extreme heat. It could be just the poverty and the the tyranny of being in always in the moment and having to decide with what is directly in front of you and nothing beyond that. Um, that's somebody's present crisis all the time. So we did try to identify the, the ethos or the patterns of resilience, both in nature, you know, with just how God designed the world to bounce back from things. We try to learn from that. We, we try to look at systems that are um, highly technological and how those systems might adapt. And you kind of find the same characteristics, agility, as was mentioned earlier, you know, redundancy, um, the ability to reflect on something and just kind of pause, look at it, think about it, and then take action. That practice of reflection and decision-making is part of being resilient. I always say this thing, um, there's this statement about a, a person, an adult, a human being, and hopefully with all their faculties walking down the sidewalk, if you trip on one of the edges of it and maybe you fall or maybe you just stumble, there's a difference between the person that can kind of pause and look back and see, wait, what did I just trip on? And then maybe adjust their stride as they're going forward. And it's almost instantaneous, but we do it. Versus the person who doesn't have the ability to do that. They trip, fall, and they just kind of tumble forward and they just kind of get into the next thing. And then maybe it's in the street and you can see how horrible that can go, um, you know, unchecked. And so we try to identify those ethos, those characteristics of resilience and apply it consistently with every disaster. So when the pandemic hit, it was, again, the same question, who's vulnerable, right? How are they vulnerable, And, you know, what do we need to reflect about our current situation so we can move forward? And I think our community is getting that message. I remember in March when uh, we were trying to find simple messages for the pandemic because it's wild and nobody knows what to do. And we all thought, who's vulnerable and how can we focus on them to make them stronger? How can we pull together for the people that are experiencing the worst of this whole thing? And um, if you can start to think about those people, I think the solutions work themselves out in a way that benefits the entire community. I just want to add to that real quickly, Abena, because for us, particularly with the pandemic, what what I think a turning point for our community was that identifying those that were vulnerable. Well, it was it was largely those folks who had no shelter to shelter in place, right? So we were talking about folks that are that are experiencing homelessness or folks that were at risk of losing their home. Um, they could not quarantine themselves. Um, But what was interesting is that we were able to send this message that 
while we were, yes, intervening to protect those who are vulnerable, by protecting our most vulnerable, we were protecting the broader community as well. Because had we done nothing, and then we said, well, it's not our problem, which would be alien here. But if we had done that and said, it's not our problem, what we would have seen would have been spread of that virus in an uncontrolled way. And so folks started to recognize that the resilience of the vulnerable um, and the intervention into vulnerabilities was a strengthening of the whole. And that's something that's real, real hard for folks to understand, particularly during the pandemic, because you, you, you sort of isolated yourself and it's all about my home and my family and, and what's going on right here. It's hard in America. <laughs> Our culture doesn't really allow us exactly. to think that way. It's so individualistic, right? And so, and it, and it's, but it's not a bad thing to talk about we are only as strong as our most vulnerable, right? Our strength is, is inherently dependent on what those vulnerabilities are and how we adapt to them. To your point, how do we respond to tripping on that sidewalk? Um, so I thought that was a really good point. I'm going to have to steal that from you. <laughs> well, what, what's so impressive to me about the two of you is characterized exactly by this conversation, where using the tripping on the sidewalk uh, analogy as well, someone learns from that. You look back at it and say, oh, okay, I need to lift my foot up higher. I need to watch out for that. But you seem to embrace the daily challenges that are put in front of you and say, that's just life. That's running a city. That's You, you need to get comfortable with that and then work with everybody who's experiencing things in real time that are highly variable. And if you think you're ever going to reach a, a point of stasis and have it all set, that won't be a very satisfying job for you. But so the way the two of you embrace this constancy of having to address new things, I think is just so admirable. Do you- well, do, can, I, can I interrupt you really quickly? I just want us to go back. You and I had a conversation about two years ago. It was your last trip before the shutdown. And you and I were having a conversation over breakfast and you, you said, Nicole, talk to me, talk, talk to me more about resilience. Talk to me about, you know, what does it mean for a city? And we were, and I was going through all my spiel and you said, well, wait a minute, Nicole, basically what you're telling me is that resilience is everything in a city. It's everything. It's everything a city does. It's how the whole organism adapts to anything that gets thrown at it. I said, yes, sir. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's the challenge. And that's never going to go away. It's, it's like saying, I figured out life. Well, somebody, somebody let me know how, where that, where that book is, because I've never seen it. <laughs> so I'm hoping what you just suggested there is I actually listen when I ask the question. So I'm learning, Nicole, <laughs> I'm slowly learning. And, and, and link it, linking vulnerability, which I think is, is a visceral term. We get that. To be vulnerable is, is, is not to be in a good situation. Vulnerability and equity, you see those, are those interchangeable or the differences between the two of them? They're not the same term, but, but how do you compare those two things? Well, I was just thinking last week we were trying to teach our, our very young children that word vulnerability. And it wasn't even work related. This is just faith related. Uh, I imagine my five-year-old trying to say the word vulnerable and vulnerability, and they did. And, and we asked them, you know, what it is. And uh, I said, who's vulnerable? And, and he said, anyone who needs protection. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty, pretty good. Anyone that could get hurt that needs protection. Um, and, you know, as Nicole, you were alluding to, there's something about our, our society, our culture that has to get to that point that we ask ourselves that question, who could get hurt and who needs protection? And, and to see ourselves as part of the work required for their, for their good. Um, fundamentally, I think in several city departments or divisions, we're thinking about that every day, but not everybody thinks about it that way. But a crisis or a disaster is the moment 
where we have a chance to care for ourselves, but also consider somebody else that needs uh, protection. And so in, in disasters, I think vulnerability shines really loudly. And on the everyday setting, equity might be an easier word to enter into, where you're just walking around. We actually just had a staff meeting and we had somebody talk about he- working with somebody with a hearing loss and knowing that there's a significant amount of our population that has hearing loss and they're just sort of managing. They're going through the day you know, adjusting, correcting, and just self-managing. And what would it take if we considered that in the planning of our meetings, in the way we talk with our clients and communicate services to them, the way we set up our citizen engagement rooms, you know, when we're having outreach. Those kinds of everyday questions is how we actually drive equity regard without a disaster. Now, when a disaster happens, then I would hope we would stop and think about who's vulnerable in that particular um, crisis. That's a great way to to put those two terms, vulnerability and equity, side by side, the daily experience of, of what needs to be overcome, which has to be equitable, and vulnerability, which gets you closer to that disastrous kind of experience or something that's episodic in nature. That's, that's really helpful, I believe. One of the things that I would add is just that I think um, one of the things that's really difficult about vulnerability is acknowledging that you have them that you have vulnerabilities, right? And it's something that particularly in government <clears throat> at any level, um, it's it's not um, typically something that we do well. Uh, you know, get out there and talk about our, our own vulnerabilities as a system, right? We, we typically get out there and we talk about, you know, all the great things we're doing for the community, you know, how we're, you know, maximizing the use of the taxpayer dollar, you know, that, that, that kind of, you know, trope, right, that, that's out there. Um, but what I think our work, the, the work that Abana and I do uh, at, at a city really rocks the system in such a way because we're all about identifying those vulnerabilities, all, all about identifying those things that, um, that, that um, challenge our community and then really tackling them head on. But the first step in tackling a challenge is acknowledging that you have that challenge, right? And so whether you're discussing that in the context of, you know, crisis related vulnerability or you're discussing that in the day to day equity conversation, acknowledging where that exists and being open and transparent about it is something that's very difficult for governments to do. But I think you're seeing cities like ours that are having this conversation leading the way. Have we figured it out? Holy? No, no, we have not. Um, But we're getting there. I could not agree with you more, and this is why, again, I so enjoy talking to the two of you. I think you both would agree that cities are those places, as you just described it, Nicole, where you see vulnerabilities because you can it's right there in front of you. You can drive to it. You can go visit it. Your neighbors live in those situations, and which is why I think it's fair to say cities really have become the laboratories of democracy. I know Supreme Court Justice Brandeis characterized states as that. But it seems that cities have taken that position because of leaders like the two of you and where you really come in close contact with the lives of of others, and therefore you have to respond to those. But one would be remiss if you ignored the fact that you're in two of the largest states in the union, uh, and that's what's so interesting about the Ten Across Project, having California, Texas, and Florida lined up there. And so there are some externalities surrounding your cities and maybe some things happening in uh, state government where people want to have something to say about how you manage your cities, what should be going on in those cities. 
How do you uh, address that in your daily work? Do you put it out of mind as best you can, or how do you function when you know there's another layer of government that you were just describing, Nicole, that seems to want to have a say in your business? Maybe, Nicole, you could lead with that. State of Texas, they don't have anything. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that alone. I will just, I want to start a little bit with something funny. I saw a meme a little, maybe a couple of weeks ago, that said uh, it was a picture of three like, like little kids, like feeling like looking like this, like, like kind of like, I just got in trouble, right? And it said, uh, uh, California, Texas, and Florida. Why is it always you guys? <laughs> I need I that cartoon. Good. I need that cartoon because we often say in the Ten Across Project, as those three states go, so goes the country. In so many ways, this is where we're gonna. We're leaders. Work. That's what. That's why you are, and and you're going to work out what democracy turns out to be for better or worse. But it's going to happen in those three states. I think you're right. Yeah, and it, it is true. So 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 in in all seriousness, and I will find that cartoon for you. Um, in Texas, it's always been a challenge, right? I mean, um, you have you know six major cities that uh, lean heavily in one direction. And then you have the rest of the state that leans heavily in another direction. And you see that represented in our state uh, legislature. Um, I think that it's, it's always interesting because you have a state government in Texas that will scream to the hills that, you know, uh, states' rights and, and states should govern what goes on in states. And then they want to take away local control from municipalities. Um, and, and you see that done uh, through the power of the purse at the state level. And so um, there's a couple of things that we do. Number one, we continue to advocate at the state level. We, we also understand, it was interesting when I became part of the 100 Resilient Cities Network and my first interactions were with my counterparts like in New Orleans and um, Berkeley and San Francisco and LA. And, and they were all doing these fantastic things and, and speaking this language. And I said, that's super great, you guys. But in Texas, I have to speak a different language. In Texas, I have to really frame this around, again, and, and this is not a bad thing, by the way. I have to frame it around how does it impact the people of Texas? How does it impact um, the way that we live in, in both rural and urban communities? And I really got to be able to look at that. And so we've continued as cities to advocate at the state level for that kind of um, uh, uh, effort, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so much. Um, and there's some pretty key examples very recently um, uh, with the Texas state legislature. But that being said, um, a lot of times, you know, it's particularly when resources come down directly from the federal government, you start to see the cities have a lot more ability to flex, right? And so we'd like to see that a little bit more direct, direct resourcing to cities, again, with the flexibility that we talked about at the top of the hour, right? But, you know, resource cities directly because we are the ones that are really, you know, we make a move and you see the action. If that comes through the state, you're going to see the delayed reaction. And so that's something that we've really heavily started to advocate for at the federal level. Um, but we're also advocating for that change um, at the state level. And, and, and that's just a constant challenge. But it also challenges us, I think, as communities. We're, we, we have to, to think about our strategies um, and how we are, are speaking to the other side, for, for lack of a better phrase, right? Um, it's, it's not like... Um, we're able to just so easily move forward with a certain agenda of a certain side, right? We've got to figure out how to collaborate and move forward. And, and that's the only way we can do that as a state. So uh, Texas, I think, is, is a prime example of that and probably Florida as well. Well, I, yeah, I think those three are the leaders, right? Because they, they have um, a healthy tension. And that's been the history of, of these regions 
Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think if you ever think you're doing anything right, if you think you got a, a super solution, you test it with tension, you test it with friction, you test it with different opinions. And, and that really starts to expose vulnerabilities, but also shows you some opportunities. Um, I, I think with Florida and Tallahassee being a capital city, we are situated in the midst of it, but we also feel quite apart from what's happening at the state level. So if you want to be focused on the sort of state and federal level, you can, but you can also very much just drive around the city and be engaged directly with your next door neighbor and, and keep a little bit of a distance, Duke, as you alluded to, there's sort of one way to deal with it, right? Is to stay away from the politics and just to get the work done. Um, I do agree that learning to speak uh, in a way that invites as many uh, supporters in as possible is key because this is about all of us and it's not really about ideology. It's about how we all survive. Um, so the challenge on professionals like myself and Nicole is to constantly find not just common ground, but to articulate our work in a way that is meaningful for everybody. And and that's just the challenge we take on. We just have to do that. What were you yeah, going to say? I, 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 I was just going to say, I mean, I think, I think you hit it on the head and it's, it's about what the result is, right? We have to stay focused on sort of what is that ultimate benefit? You know, who, who, who is experiencing that um, and bringing people together to stay focused on that, on that prosperity for all of us, right? And I think when you could, when you can produce those results, that's something that we've been successful with in El Paso. I'll use a, a quick example. You know, we've got a state that wants to invest in border security, uh, for example, right? Uh, and so what we did is we leveraged the conversation around border security to access just over $30 million to invest in the infrastructure at our ports of entry, which is something that we had needed for decades, right? And that infrastructure actually enhanced our economic development capacity. It actually enhanced our ability to create more fluidity, north and south, right? But we were able to go to the state and talk about border security and talk about what border security really meant as a result. And what that meant was investing in, in those ports of entry. So that's a, that's a tangible result that we were able to have a conversation with the other side, right? They may have been thinking about the wall and we were thinking about trade. And so that was something that, that I think is an example of the common ground that Abin is talking about, but it's not just common ground in terms of, you know, minor things we can agree on. It's common ground in terms of where we're all trying to go. How we yeah. get there is the, is the way the sausage is made, you know? Right. I, I think sometimes, too, common ground starts to feel like this nebulous nothing of a solution that everybody can sort of just swallow, but we don't really like it. It just kind of lost all of its flavor. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. I think um, everybody is looking for solutions. And sometimes the person that can articulate it and offer something soon, sooner rather than later can just get get something in front and get it done without really um, a lot of fighting about it. Um, but I think also there there's a life and death and an urgency that comes with crisis. So I'll be honest, I mean, I think the work that we do centers so much around disasters and crisis because it's effective. I mean, this is just when we're either going to be our best selves or our worst selves in crisis, but we're going to be something versus a peacetime where we're just barbecuing and hanging out and nothing is getting really done. Nobody is getting in each other's face. And it's, it's just that absence of conflict doesn't necessarily mean co um, progress either. So there's something worth um, digging into in crisis and, and the urgency that we can take to get things done is really helpful on all sides of the equation, regardless of sort of where you where your ideology is. 
So, so Abin, that's a perfect way to bring this conversation to closure because I wanted to bring up something that had to do with the two of you having demonstrated being your best selves in the face of crises or disasters. So one of the taglines for 10 Across is the responsibility of knowing. We as a society have probably had never had greater access to the future. We can see it in data trend lines. We can see it if we just go drive around our communities. We can see things happening. And our ability to predict what needs probably to be done in advance of that next disaster or crisis uh, is hugely important. And we can do that if we can get our act together as a society. So if you look out at uh, El Paso uh, in the future, let's go a couple of decades out, maybe. Uh, maybe that's too far, but that's the kind of planning that both of you, I think, uh, in the terms that you think in, and or Tallahassee, what is the thing looming on the horizon that you think needs to be attended to now if you could convince decision makers to uh, put that kind of effort in? And maybe, Abana, we'll start with you in Tallahassee, because you were just talking about those things you know, that, that, that need to be attended to. Yeah, Duke, you mentioned the access to information about the future, and it's it's so tempting and it's sexy even to just be on the edge, the leading edge, and to be looking at what's um, coming. But I have found over the last year or so this um, unquenchable thirst to learn from the past. Um, I think it is it slows me down in a way that's really helpful. Um, to kind of backtrack and to go into trends from the past. Because I think what happens in disaster when we're eager to act is to um, not just do things quickly, but to anticipate the next thing. But what history might tell us over millennia is that uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And sometimes we repeat mistakes. And so I found such a, a draw to, to historical moments and kind of how we either rose from it or what stories we're telling ourselves now about what we did then. Um, I'm reading The Half Has Never Been Told, and uh, it's blowing my mind, and I recommend it for everyone. It's about slavery and the making of American capitalism. Um, but it, it looks at pivotal moments in our time and how policy and government and decision-making at even household level, neighborhood levels, all kind of aggregate into who we are now. And... It scares me to death, to be honest. I think it's a good thing, but it scares me to death to think that a decade, maybe 25 years from now, 50 years from now, we'll be looking back at this pandemic and thinking, did we waste it all away? Did we squander our disaster? Or did we really do something that changed for generations to come? Um, and that, I feel like we're almost in a reconstruction era again. We have a, a chance to reset and maybe fulfill some of the promises that we said we would we would do for our people. But at the same time, we're trying to look ahead of the next thing we might trip over. And so I do think, and I encourage everyone to, especially those in leadership position, to pause and reflect on sort of major moments in our history and learn from that. Because in fact, I don't think anything is new under the sun, but we can learn a lot from looking back um, more so than looking forward. Now, I just blew your question, Duke. Uh, no, but <laughs> well, no, you didn't, because I think there is a lot of emphasis on things changing rapidly. We hear a lot about that. Your hurricanes are going to be more frequent and more severe. Other things are going to be very different than they were in the past. And therefore, there's a, a focus on the future because that future seems fragile or more indeterminate than we wish that it was. 
but you're saying calm down, look at the past and take it all in, uh, and we could go back to 1918 in the previous pandemic, and if you read the history of it, it's astonishingly proximate to what we're going through now. Did we learn? Not enough, apparently. So I think your, advi- your advice is good. Nicole, do you want to uh, bring us to a close? Yeah, I'm actually going to thank you for that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by that. I think that you're absolutely right. We do need to be reflective, because if you're, if you're unable to reflect and learn, um, you're just going to continue to trip. And <clears throat> so I think that's really, really important. Um, what I would say, though, to your initial question, Duke, is, you know, you're talking about 10 or 20 years out. Is that too far? The answer to that is absolutely not. Um, uh, public service specifically uh, is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, it's not about the winds that are right in front of your face. And, and this is interesting. And, and maybe this is a little too in the weeds for, you know, the, the bureaucrat in me. But um, I'm a public servant, not a politician. And so I am looking at the long game. I am not looking at the next uh, bumper sticker. And so I think by being reflective and looking at what we have experienced, looking at what others have experienced is the other thing. Step outside of ourselves a little bit. One of the things that's challenging to El Paso is that we are in, I think, a time in our history that is going to prove to be the turning point for whatever the next version of El Paso is going to be. And we have a choice to make right now. How are we going to approach that? But not just looking at our own history, but looking at, you know, this is, this is what we saw Austin go through, you know, 20 years ago. This is where Phoenix was, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And so how are we looking to our peers and learning from what they learned and not making those same mistakes um, and leaning on them as well to, to help us move forward? And so that's what I see El Paso doing right now is taking a look at what are our growth patterns, what kind of investments are we making, and what are we prioritizing. And the thing that I'm most proud of right now is that as a city, regardless of whether all of our decisions are, are, are great or not or whatever the, the politics of the moment are, everything we do is focused on our people and the prosperity of our people, right? And everything else is, is an investment in that, and as long as we stay focused on that, I think that we will go in the right direction in terms of the next 20 to 25 years. Um, but I, I will say, I will end on a super positive note. Um, don't underestimate El Paso. We're coming. Yeah. <laughs> you you better come. We need El Paso. I think you proved that you proved that during the big freeze that El Paso is an exception to the rule in the best way. But both of you have proven yet again why you're such exceptional public servants. And I think that's the right way to put it, Nicole. I'm glad you you used that phrase. Uh, Your cities are very fortunate to have access to your insights and your thoughtfulness and that glass half full perspective. So thank you so much for taking time. I know a lot of people are going to benefit greatly from hearing how you're approaching your work and why your two cities are going to thrive in the future. So thank you so much. Amen to that. Thank you. This episode is a production of Ten Across. Ten Across is a 2,400-mile observatory tracking the U.S. Interstate 10 quarter from Los Angeles, California to Jacksonville, Florida, a region on the front lines of demographic, social, economic, and especially climate change. In this podcast series, I will be speaking with subject experts and those with lived experience who bring unique insights to the intersection of issue and place. For more about Ten Across, visit our website at tenacross.com. That's the number 10 across.com. Ten Across Conversations is produced and edited by Luke Simmons. Research and support provided by Ray Ulrich, Kate Carefoot, and Sabina Butler. 
I'm your host, Duke Ryder. Thank you for listening. episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. And even though my job is to introduce speakers on this podcast, I feel today's talk needs no introduction because it is singer, rapper, songwriter, chart topper, famous twerker, Lizzo. She brought her Lizzo energy and Lizzo booty to the stage at TED Monterey 2021. And I am so delighted to share it with you today. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive. Have you tried the Name Your Price tool yet? It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to find a rate that works for you. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive. Get your quote today at Progressive.com and see why four out of five new auto customers recommend Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If you follow me on social media, you've probably seen my hiney before. It's no secret. (laughs) But, you know, I used to hate my ass. Believe it or not. I have my father's shape and my mother's size, so it's big and long. (laughs) I used to think that only asses like J-Lo's or Beyonce's could be famous. I never thought that could happen to me. I always felt like my body type wasn't the right one or the desirable one growing up. Because I grew up in an era where having a big ass wasn't mainstream. I grew up watching movies where women were like, does my ass look fat in this? Like it was a bad thing. (laughs) I felt like the ass odds were against me, but baby... (laughs) This badonkadonkdonk was going places. (laughs) My ass has been the topic of conversation. My ass has been in magazines. Rihanna gave my ass a standing ovation. (laughs) Yes, my booty, my least favorite part of my body. How did this happen? Twerking. Through the movement of twerking, I discovered my ass is my greatest asset. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Ted Twerk. So, the first time I saw twerking in person was at a teen club called The Z in Houston, Texas. There, I saw a bunch of girls my age shaking their booty to New Orleans bounce, and I was like, how are they doing that? It was incredible to me. Thanks to my Caribbean besties, Peaches and Jeline, and thanks to Master P, whoop, whoop, (laughs) I found the rhythm. The better I got, the more I fell in love with what I had, because damn, my ass could do magic. (laughs) Finally, I could twerk, but twerking did not begin with me, believe it or not. (laughs) I know you think I invented twerking, I didn't. (laughs) I want you to know where twerking came from. 
I think everyone should know where everything comes from. You should know where your food and water come from. You should know where your clothes come from. <laughs> It's important to me to keep the origin story of twerking alive. So here's some farm to table for that ass. <laughs> so funny. Modern day twerking derived from black people and black culture. It has a direct parallel to West African dances like mapuka. Traditionally, mapuka was a dance for West African women to be used as a celebration of joy, religious worship, or a dance to do at a wedding to show you were DTF or DTM. Down to Mary, down to Mary. Get your mind out the gutter. <laughs> Black women carried these dances across the transatlantic slave trade to the ring shout in what became the Black American Church, into the hips of Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith when they sang the blues, into the bounce of Josephine Baker's banana dance, from jazz dance to jitterbug, from shake your tail feather to shake your thing to that thing thangin'. <laughs> Black people carried the origins of this dance through our DNA, through our blood, through our bones. We made twerking the global cultural phenomenon it has become today. Now, as a big black woman who has ass, who can twerk, and who's been doing it her whole life, I kind of think I'm an expert on the subject. <laughs> I want to add to the classical etymology of this dance because it matters. Black people will not be erased from the creation, the history, and the innovation of twerking. <laughs> Thank you. From TikTok trends to songs and humor, we see so much erasure of what Black people have created. So I want to do everything in my power to prevent the erasure of Blackness from twerking. Twerking is a Black American communal collaboration born of Black Southern culture, from DJ Jubilee and Cash Money Records in New Orleans to Lil Jon and the Yin Yang Twins in Atlanta to Uncle Luke in Miami. Twerking was alive and well in nearly every Black club in the South. But it would take years after these songs were released for twerking to finally become mainstream. I got a test for y'all. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, oh no no. Uh oh, uh oh, uh oh, oh no no. You know that one? The uh oh dance. Beyonce called it that because she was trying to warn us. <laughs> because of Destiny's Child, Bootylicious is in the dictionary. And because of Beyonce's 2003 music video for her single "Crazy in Love," the world was introduced to the uh-oh dance. That was the first time I'd ever seen a pop star do something like that, and I wanted to be just like her. Beyonce gave me permission to be myself, to be bootylicious, <laughs> because she could shake ass and still be seen as classy in the eyes of America, and that was hard to do. When I moved from Houston to Minneapolis in the early 2010s. I hadn't seen twerking in a while until Big Frida's tour came to town. Now Big Frida performs bounce music with the voice of a preacher and the body of a bad bitch. <laughs> If you can imagine, it's incredible. Big Frida has a moment in her shows where she will call people on stage to twerk, and she chose me from the audience to battle another person. And I remember being like, "Oh my God, I miss this so much." <laughs> When I was up there, I thought to myself, not only am I shaking ass, but I'm winning. And besides Big Frida, I'm the best twerker in the building. And just like that, I was reintroduced to twerking. When I started to perform my solo music, I began incorporating twerking into my performances, and people would go crazy. I performed for mainly indie audiences, so they didn't know what the fuck was happening, and I liked it that way. <laughs> twerking made me feel empowered. It was my secret language. My sauce. 
Little did I know that a couple years later, Miley Cyrus would perform what seemed like the twerk heard around the world. Y'all remember that? In 2013, within a month of each other, I released my debut project, Lizzo Bangers, and Miley Cyrus released her project, Bangers. That same year, Miley released a single, We Can't Stop, and she was twerking in the video. I remember being like, this is crazy, Hannah Montana twerking all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) A couple months later, she performed with Robin Thicke on the VMAs, and that night, seemingly overnight, twerking went mainstream. The media described twerking as, I quote, disturbing and disgusting. Critics blasted twerking as something that was exploiting and over-sexualizing young women. Once mainstream, twerking was misunderstood and taken out of context. It was bittersweet. For one, I wish that a black woman could have popularized twerking in the mainstream. But on the other end, twerking going mainstream played a role in the rise of my profile and my career. Listen... Everything that black people create, from fashion to music to the way we talk, is co-opted, appropriated, and taken by pop culture. For this reason, optimism can be an illusion to the experience of black people in America. In this TED Talk, I'm not trying to gatekeep, but I'm definitely trying to let you know who built the damn gate. The fact that I can make a stake in the reclamation of black things and black culture makes me very optimistic. To be on stage at the premier conference for the experts in their field, talking about twerking (laughs) and stating my facts makes me optimistic. The best thing I can do is be loud and take ownership. Because for me, twerking is a pearl of optimism. It's a form of self-expression, freedom, confidence, Twerking is not just something I do to music. It's extremely useful. (laughs) It manifests in my life in ways that I need more joy. In the mornings, twerking leads me to stretching and taking care of my body. I bend over and I isolate my cheeks. I'm in downward dog. (laughs) Namaste. (laughs) Sometimes I put on a song and I shake ass and immediately I'm in love with myself. And not just self-love. I mean like... Okay, Lizzo, what's your number? (laughs) I would do me. But it's not just sexual. It's not. (laughs) Twerking is a deep, soulful, spiritual practice. It's hip-opening. It's empowering. When performed as the Mapuka, it's said to connect you to God. It's sacred. And now we're practicing that on mainstream stages. We're practicing that at home. And it's contributing to the liberation of women and people around the world. Twerking is good for humanity. (laughs) Forty years ago, when black and brown people in New York invented breakdancing, it was villainized. Mainstream media weaponized breakdancing by connecting it to gang activity and violence. As an art form and subculture, it wasn't taken seriously. Fast forward to today, breakdancing is now an Olympic sport. What will be the future of twerking? Will we see twerking as an Olympic sport one day? And will black people still be part of it? I'm proud to be a twerk pioneer. I'm grateful for the asses that came before me. (laughs) All hail Beyonce. Nicki Minaj. From Betty Boop to Buffy the Body. 
When I shake this ass, I do it for the culture, not the vulture. For me, twerking ain't a trend. My body is not a trend. I twerk for the strippers, for the video vixens, for the church ladies who shout, for the sex workers. I twerk because black women are undeniable. I twerk for my ancestors, for sexual liberation, for my bitches, hey girl. <laughs> because I can, because I know I look good. I twerk because it's unique to the black experience. It's unique to my culture, and it means something real to me. I twerk because I'm talented. <laughs> because I'm sexual, but not to be sexualized. <laughs> I twerk to own my power, to reclaim my blackness, my culture. I twerk for fat black women because being fat and black is a beautiful thing. <laughs> I twerk because it's as natural to me as breathing. Black women invented twerking, and twerking is part of the revolution. We've been doing it. We're going to keep on doing it because we have and always will be the blueprint. <laughs> We twerk to remind ourselves we here and we ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I don't know why I'm emotional, but I feel like we made history tonight. So thank you so much. <laughs> TED Talks Daily is hosted by me, Elise Hugh, and produced by TED. Theme music is from Allison Layton Brown, and our mixer is Christopher Fazy Bogan. We record the talks at TED events we host or from TEDx events, which are organized independently by volunteers all over the world. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or email us at podcasts at TED.com. Please follow us on Facebook and subscribe via iTunes. Briefing last day of the quarter, Thursday, September 30th, 2021. Hope you are doing well. Uh, coming to you from Jekyll Island, Tom, Federal Reserve guy. What's Jekyll Island famous for? Uh, creating the Federal Reserve, or where they they secretly met and the Illuminati took over the world, the world banking system. It's super intense and it's really weird. Because I've never been to Jekyll Island before. They have a museum for like everything. Went to the Sea Turtle Museum yesterday. Uh, they've got one museum that's just called Mosaic. That's like smaller than my house and i don't know what it's for there's no there does not seem to be any kind of historical uh remembrance of that event which was pretty monumental there's a, i think it's uh i want to say the name of the book is the devil the devil from jekyll island but there's a famous book about the start of of the federal reserve and it's very anti-federal reserve yeah yeah so they met i think in 1910 maybe the federal reserve started in 1913 i want to say 
met in 1910, basically came up with the blueprint. Uh, the people involved, the bankers, maintained that it was absolutely a requirement. Uh, they could not let Congress uh, develop laws to regulate banks and the financial system without input from bankers. But at the time, uh, Congress would not accept input from bankers on how that should be done. So they basically formed a blueprint, kind of leaked it around, got the Federal Reserve, made them the way they wanted it. But we'll jump back in. Uh, economic data. Uh, we are waiting on initial jobless claims. They're probably coming through right now. Uh, been initial jobless claims, the estimates for 330,000 last week, we saw 351. What are we looking at? It's 362,000. So we're going in the wrong direction. Again, um, you know, you want to look at a moving average on this. Um, but this is now a few weeks in a row where we've been uh, trending um, poorly. Uh, we were thinking that we'd be trending a little bit more positively. We did end up getting all the way down to 312,000 on September 3rd. But since that time, we've popped back up 335, 351, now 362. This is the worst jobless claims number since August 6th. So um, that's quite some time and it's not good. It's not a great read for what this jobs number is gonna be. But as we talked about yesterday at the conference and we've talk, been talking more and more, Jay Powell and the rest of the Federal Reserve, they're not gonna change stripes. They are planning to taper in November and they're gonna announce the taper in November. They'll probably start in December and get the taper going and it probably will finish sometime mid year. And that's kind of baked into the cake at this point. And I don't think uh, even these lukewarm, even arguably lackluster numbers on the jobless claims or uh, unemployment are really gonna change the Federal Reserve's course. Yeah, they seem pretty set on it. Uh, we're also getting a final look on Q2 GDP. Uh, if this seems like it might be antiquated information and stuff that may not matter a whole bunch now that Q3 is ending, you're probably right. But Ben, uh, any major takeaways? Uh, I just came in at 6.7. Last read was 6.6. .6, so uh, I think the key is now what's going to happen in Q3, because we all know that there was some deceleration. We'll talk a little bit about what companies are seeing in Q3 and why those numbers are coming in a little bit lighter than expected for Q3. Um, and then also what could happen in Q4. But as far as Q2 goes, it's done and dusted. Uh, it is what it is, and uh, nothing really too much to talk about there. Awesome. We are getting a bit of a market rebound after some uh, selling earlier in the week and last week. Uh, closed in the green yesterday, although some of that strength faded as the day went on. Uh, we're poised for a update today, at least in pre-market trading. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens today. Again, it's end of month, end of quarter. I think that you will see some of the flows coming back into the market after we saw a lot of outflows earlier in the week. So this could set up for a pretty good day today and tomorrow if that actually happens. And, and if that does happen, I would expect us to continue to rally strongly. But uh, we'll talk a little bit about it in a minute, this Bed Bath & Beyond news. Uh, we had Micron uh, on Tuesday. And companies are not putting up the earnings results for Q3. So you could also see that somewhat offset by people betting against stocks as they go into earnings season over the next two weeks. Um, uh, my base case is that you end up seeing us climb that wall of worry and then we'll end up rallying into the end of the year. Uh, but again, the next two weeks could be a little bit noisy. Um, I think the bias is to the upside, but it could go either way. Good deal. Uh, update from Washington, DC, the Senate's voting uh, this morning on uh, avoiding the government shutdown. Uh, again, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We've been talking about it off and on for the last couple weeks. It's one of those things that, you know, 
it seemed like a huge story back in the day when we were talking about trying to avoid a government shutdown. It was all over everything. But now we're kind of used to this. It's kind of par for the course at this juncture. But they've got the boat. They're trying to extend funding until December 3rd. Uh, seems highly likely that it will pass through the Senate and go to Biden's desk. Um, should pass relatively easily. Simultaneously, uh, Pelosi, Pelosi is bringing the $550 billion infrastructure deal to the House floor. How do you think that's going to shake out, Ben? And, and how are people positioning on various sides of the aisle and even various sects within the Democratic and conservative side? Yeah, I'd say quickly on the uh, government shutdown, I don't think we're going to see a big government shutdown. I think we're going to get past that. Um, but it is causing a little bit of consternation. Uh, Melissa, our financial planner, was already in kind of talking about what do you think is going to happen with that because people are concerned about Social Security checks and things like that. I think this is just, uh, I think it'll pass. And I, I think that this time tomorrow, we won't be worried about government shutdown and Social Security checks, but uh, it is causing headlines a bit this morning. Um, as far as the infrastructure bill, uh, this $550 billion deal, I do think it will pass. And I think it'll, I think you'll see a few of the Republicans in the House actually play ball because it makes sense politically for them to do so. If the Democrats do not uh, pass this, then I think that looks, Nancy Pelosi will have major egg on the face because earlier this week, she already said, I do not bring a bill to the floor unless I know it's going to pass. The progressive Democrats have said, uh, they've been intransigent. They said, we're not going to sign up for that because we want to pass it in concert with the three and a half trillion dollar infrastructure bill. Um, guys like uh, Bernie Sanders is in on that as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the infrastructure uh, deal. I do think it is likely to pass, but the odds of that are a lot lower, in my opinion, than um, sign on the debt ceiling and excuse me, the, the continuing resolution to fund the government. Um, as far as we just got a question in the chat that said, uh, didn't Biden say he wouldn't sign the infrastructure deal unless the big one came along with it? Yes, he did say that. I don't think that is the case anymore, though. He met with uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer yesterday, and it seems like Nancy Pelosi got Biden's blessing to bring this to a vote in the House. Yeah, Biden also said he was going to shut down COVID. So uh, I don't know if we necessarily have to cling to his words on everything. Uh, but that's a great point. I mean, and that was not long ago that he made that comment. Uh, so interesting to see. Seems like posturing for the most part, uh, but we'll see kind of what happens. Uh, Cole's been uh, absolutely destroyed by Bank of America. They uh, reduced the price target on stock from 75 bucks to 48. They took it from an overweight to an underweight. And so kind of behind the curtain a little bit, uh, status quo for analysts in the analyst community is essentially to slowly tick price targets up or down, essentially with where they're already heading. That tends to be what we see. Uh, typically things that are, you know, an overweight now will remain an overweight uh, for quite, quite some time, sometimes possibly too long, and then maybe they slowly shift to market weight. But to go from overweight to underweight, to have a price target slash from 75 to 48 bucks is a huge move. We've also seen kind of a disastrous quarter from Bed Bath & Beyond. Uh, ben, what's going on with those companies? I mean, it is it is really bad out there. I think we do own Target uh, and we do own a little bit of Walmart for some accounts. Um, 
and we do own some Home Depot in the brick and mortar space. And I do think that those might have some weakness today. I think when we when we talk about brick and mortar retail, we want excellent operators and excellent management teams and companies that are going to be able to source inventory, have relatively diverse ways of sourcing inventory and can generate traffic consistently. Kohl's has not been able to demonstrate that. Bed Bath & Beyond has not been able to demonstrate that. Therefore, we do not own either of them. Um, now, that is not to say Target and Walmart and those others may have some weakness today and maybe in, in the coming, coming weeks, but uh, we still feel pretty convicted about those, those investments. On the news, Kohl's is down 8% this morning on that double downgrade from Bank of America. Bank of America citing supply chain risks to the, to the company. Bed Bath & Beyond also reported earnings this morning. They have a little bit of an off cycle. Their quarter finished in August, and it was a disaster. Um, their results for the quarter, their earnings came in at four pennies a share. The estimate was for 52 cents. Um, and revenue was about in line with expectations. Their sales just really fell off a cliff in August. Their SG&A is higher than expected. Their um, gross margins are a lot weaker than expected because of those supply chain costs. And they dramatically cut guidance for the year. Their third quarter guidance is just for basically a break-even quarter. The estimate was to earn 28 cents a share. Um, and for the full year, they took guidance down to 70 cents to a buck 10 down from a prior guide of 140 to 150. Um, interestingly, their top line revenue is about where they thought it was gonna be. Uh, previously, they were looking for sales up low single digit range, kind of that two to 3% range. Now they're saying flat to slightly positive. So you're only seeing about a one to two point decline on that sales. But here's their commentary. They're saying there were unexpected external disruptive forces toward the end of the quarter in August. We talked about the significant slowdown in August in the economy, and companies are definitely seeing that as well. Traffic slowed significantly, and sales did not materialize as Bed Bath & Beyond had anticipated. They say this is a lot due to the COVID fears and the Delta variant. It was particularly true in key large states like Florida, Texas, and California. So regardless of shutdowns, they were seeing an impact. And they also said that supply chain challenges imp impacted with steeper cost inflation escalating by month beyond the significant increases that they had already anticipated. And for context, they last provided guidance in early August. So things just fell off a cliff in August. We're seeing lower jobs created. We saw that deterioration in August, September. The question is now, do we accelerate out of this? Is this COVID related and do we accelerate out of it? Think. Uh, my leaning would be yes, that we do based on high levels of household savings, high levels of household income, and high levels of corporate balance sheets. Um, but that, that remains a question to be answered. Thanks, Ben. Uh, yesterday, we mentioned this uh, earlier, but you and Tom were at the RIA, the Southeast RIA Summit. So a gathering of registered investment advisors uh, kind of from the Southeast, primarily the Atlanta area. Ben, want to throw to you first. Uh, with some of your takeaways, and then maybe you can tee up Tom, who was the moderator of a fixed income panel, uh, to get his thoughts. Yeah, so I think on the in terms of the macro outlook, um, guys from Signature FD were there. Uh, definitely the sharpest of of the three panelists. Um, there was another consultant there, and there was a guy from uh, lady from Goldman. Um, the consensus was basically: look, we're having an accelerating economy into the fourth quarter. 
sentiment is very bad. He's seeing the same thing that we're seeing is in terms of clients are pretty fearful and they're fearful of a crash, not a correction. They, they think in permanent loss of significant capital. And he makes the point that, you know, that I just made household savings and income are high, COVID risks are receding. He likes U.S. value stocks, uh, prefers the U.S. over international. And then he did make the note that next year, you know, maybe six months, he might be removing that overweight of U.S. stocks. And the reason is that earnings estimates are too high, just like we're seeing today in Bed Bath & Beyond. You're seeing slowing top line growth, not to a precipitous level, but to a more normalized level. And you're seeing margin contraction due to cost inflation. On top of that, you have a midterm election cycle that's pretty much often the weakest of the four year cycle. Similar to 2018, he sees a lot of parallels between this year and uh, between 2022 and 2018. And there's also the potential that the Fed gets too tight next year. They try to raise rates too rapidly. And he also says if this stimulus bill gets passed, is this going to be actually uh, a fiscal drag? And that's I know that's weird to hear. Why would it be a fiscal drag? And he makes the point that the three and a half trillion dollars actually comes over the next 10 years in terms of spending. But the tax increases happen immediately. So he says, you know, over time, that infrastructure spending might actually come through. But in the immediate term, that's actually going to be a net drag to the economy. So he sees that he says that they could easily see a double digit correction, but he doesn't see a big crash. He says, you know, it's probably could be similar to 2018 where we have that correction. But he does think that we're in the fifth inning of a long secular bull market. He's bullish on um, people spending on capital investment and potential capital uh, cycle. He thinks that the lack of labor really necessitates people to actually invest in productivity in their businesses. Uh, so more capital equipment, so that's good. And overall, uh, he is bullish on the long term. So I thought it was a really measured analysis and, and I agreed with much, much of it. And he said it better than I did too. So uh, that was good. Um, in terms of the fixed income, there are opportunities. And I think the key debate was, which is cheaper? Do you take credit risk and not worry about interest rate risk? So basically saying, you know what, I'm going to buy this relatively indebted company, um, but they're paying off the bonds in two years and I'll be out. Or are you going to say, you know, I'll sign up for a 20-year bond in this really clean company, but if interest rates move, I could really have some big market-to-market -market risk. So that was the big debate on the panel. Tom, you moderated the panel. Where, what was the conclusion? I mean, I, I would definitely agree. I think that, you know, it was nice to interact with a couple other bond traders and, and get a feel for what they were thinking because I'm sort of siloed in my own little box here and I have my own opinions, obviously, uh, on where the bond market is. But uh, I think I'm definitely in line with the other guys. I think that, and we've talked about this a bunch on the, on the calls, which is that the real value is not in triple B corporates. The real value is uh, in some of these fallen angels, some of these names that are potentially going to get upgraded and not downgraded. And one of the guys on the panel make, made a good point, which is that uh, we've had the lowest level of defaults ever in 2021 after all of the defaults last year. So that basically what's happening is interest rates came all the way down companies that were maybe on the verge of default that they got beat up by COVID, you know, they issued new bonds, they got out there and now there's a bunch of bonds out there that are potential blowups, but there are plenty that are not. And so as rates rise, uh, you know, taper begins, we potentially see a liftoff. 
we're going to see some of the really terrible companies fall off. And we're going to see a lot of companies that, you know, they're triple B right now, like maybe something like AT&T, which is the most heavily indebted company in the world. Uh, you know, all those bonds are going to be sitting pretty heavy on them for a long time. And that could potentially be a drag. And not only that, but we've talked about this too, which is, you know, Apple issuing bonds out in 2040, 2050. You know, if you're buying bonds at all time high prices with all time long durations, um, on a 30 year bond, if the, if the 10 year moves, you know, one basis point, you're going to lose 20% off the top and you're only getting paid a coupon of 2%. Like you're underwater probably for the rest of your life and definitely for the rest of my life if you own those Apple bonds. Uh, there's just no way to make that back up. And so the conclusion is, you know, looking for some of these bonds that mature in the next two, three years uh, that are probably lower on the credit scale, but have a really good opportunity of getting upgraded. And so nailing the credit, understanding the risks, uh, and shorting up your duration without giving up yield is probably the best way to be positioned right now. And so if you look around sort of the narwhal portfolio, we've got a lot of bonds that are very clean that are kind of in that five to seven range. And then we've got a handful of bonds that are in that two to three year range uh, that are in the, you know, the double B or single B area where we feel very confident that they're going to pay off. And the result of that is you're going to get uh, sort of a barbell effect, which is one half very clean, one half very dirty and they're not really in that weird triple b middle where everything is too long and not paying you enough where you get blown up the most and so i think that's really the way to think about it uh but i thought it was very productive uh i got my opportunity to to stump about how everyone in the room doesn't know how to do fixed income and they're all lazy and charging too much money for buying etfs uh so that was very productive for me very validating uh i don't think it went over very well but you know that's what you get when you ask me to speak in front of people yeah, I'll dunk on you if I have to. Yeah, I'm sure the room uh, really appreciated that. Uh, I also heard that you got to use one of your favorite, uh, which is if the market takes a dump. Um, so yeah. glad you got to use that <laughs> in front of a, a live. I love that. Yeah, I love, love saying right. yeah. yeah, It's a good one. It's a good one. And, it, and it's got to be in front of the crowds. we got to start using stuff like that more. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Appreciate everybody for being here. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 830. Hope you have a great day. And I will start Q4 tomorrow. Talk to you soon. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. This is episode 16 of Storycast 21. I'm Jane Secker. On November the 26th, 2008, 10 Islamic terrorists sailed from Pakistan into Mumbai, India's largest city with a population of more than 12 million, and began a highly coordinated attack that would go on for four days. This is Escape the Taj Mumbai. I'm Daniela Federici. I'm a photographer and a director. Originally from Melbourne, um, I'm half Italian, half Australian. I'm separated, so yeah, so I've got one child. 
Well, I've been to India many, many times, so I'm very familiar with the crazy, kind of hectic city of Mumbai. My team and I were doing a, a TV series on the last of the Maharajas, and we arrived there the 26th of November, 2008. My name is Ashish Joshi. I am a Sky News correspondent. I count Mumbai as almost a second home. It feels like everyone in India at some point in their life must go to this city. It is known as the city of dreams. At night time, we were coming in from the airport, and so it was kind of a lot of traffic, a lot of people on the street, and it was a hot, humid night. We were staying at all the Taj properties throughout India. They were one of our sponsors for this TV series. It was for Ovation Television in America and around the world, actually. And the reason why we were going there that night is to meet with the head of the PR, who'd flown in from Delhi, to meet and greet us and just sort of send us on our way. The Taj Hotel is in South Mumbai. It's one of the most famous buildings, not just in Mumbai or in India, but in the world. It's a luxury five-star hotel, which sits right on the Arabian Sea. Incredible Victorian grand facade, stunning building, stunning architecture, instantly recognisable by anyone who is familiar with India. And when I arrived, it was um, checking in of all the silver nomads, which is all the, you know, the couples that do their big retirement trips. So it was a lot of Australians and Brits in their sort of, I'd say, 60s, checking in at reception. It was quite packed, the reception area, because everyone had just arrived. They quickly dispersed across the city, striking targets right throughout Mumbai, including a popular tourist cafe, hospitals, cinema, marketplaces. Nobody, including Daniela, could have known that already. A group of ten men, terrorists from a Pakistani-based militant group called lashkar e toiba were rampaging through the city. Also in their gun sites, the city's Chhatrapati Shivaji railway terminus. They were armed with guns and explosives and had just attacked one of the city's main train stations and a cafe very close to the hotel itself. Now they were bound for the Taj. Their aim was to kill as many people as possible. So I sent the camera gear up with a bellman and paid him some cash. And then I had to fill out a form because I had the room. So I gave the Indian girl at reception my Australian passport. And I said, look, I don't have time to fill out the form now. I'm running really late for a meeting. And she said, oh, yes, the meeting's been changed from the restaurant up to the bar. As we were standing there, you could hear sort of the sound of fireworks in the distance. And I just said to my cameraman, I said, that's really peculiar. You know, it's November. It's not wedding season. So strange to have fireworks in India at that time. And as we sort of moved away from the reception and went towards the staircase to go up to the bar on the first floor, they came into the reception area. We know the gunman entered the Daj Hotel just after nine o'clock in the evening. People were falling to the floor, people were screaming, people were hiding. And we kind of ran up the stairs. And from that point, our sort of adrenaline kicked in. We ran up through to the right into the bar. All my crew were waiting, sitting at a table having a drink. 
because I said, look, there's someone coming in with guns. We've got to do something. So basically, we just slammed the doors closed and we barricaded it with couches and the furniture. And by the time they came around to where we were, we'd barricaded it quite severely. So they couldn't really get through. And there were bullets flying around the room, but we were able to sort of hide behind furniture and the bar and the columns that were there. And we could hear them killing people outside the door and, and they were throwing them in the stairwell. Very good evening. Uh, let's bring you up to date with the very latest from the city of terror. Mumbai hit by a wave of terrorist attacks. The focus appears to have been two luxury hotels, the Taj Palace and the Trident Obroy. There was a padded kind of wall behind the bar and we realised it was doors, so we sort of pried it open. Going from the bar into the second ballroom was all of about 20 minutes. As soon as they stopped shooting us through the doors, we just jumped up and ran, ran across. In the next room was a small ballroom which had an Indian wedding going on and they had no idea what was going on because the music was so loud. So they were dancing. We sort of grabbed them and said, hey, guys, you know, this is serious. So we all went from that room into a large corner ballroom and as we went through, we closed the doors behind us and barricaded with the furniture in the room. So they couldn't really get in. And there was another door going onto the stairwell, the staircase, and we barricaded that. Then we took the ice buckets from the wedding and tried to break them through the windows because the windows were all locked and double glazed. And because they were double glazed, you know, we didn't know at the time, but it's really about a small point of impact. And we were using these big ice buckets with the boys were trying to smash through. All their might wasn't breaking through these windows. So basically we were stranded in that room. Mumbai City is in lockdown. The tension turns whispers into rumours. How many more terrorists are hiding in India's teeming millions? Is a second wave. I arrived on the 27th of November 2008, and that's about 24 hours after the first initial reports of the attack. Police and the Indian Navy have searched the ship, the MV Alpha, which uh, sailed to Mumbai from the Pakistan port city of Karachi. Once it was moored off Mumbai, it's believed the attackers used inflatable dinghies to reach the shore just beside the gateway of India, and that's right next to the Taj Palace Hotel. The group responsible for the attack is called Lashkar-e-Taiba. Now, that means soldiers of the pure. They're a Pakistani-based militant organisation who claim to be fighting for the Muslims in Indian-administered Kashmir. At the main train station, young Asian gunmen caught on camera sprayed waiting commuters with automatic weapons. Many people died on the station's forecourt and platforms. The gunman reloaded three times. These terrorists landed their boats maybe five to ten minutes away in one of these small fishing villages dotted around the Taj. There were reports coming in of people who'd been shot dead and injured, possibly dozens by this stage. Throughout the day, gunfire and explosions have crackled around the buildings at the centre of what is basically a battle. The situation was changing all the time. The, the widespread attack that had taken place at key targets across the city had now centralised. It was focused on the Daj. 
we can see outside that there, it's uh, chaotic scenes outside. I mean, uh, there's uh, cars everywhere blocking, trying to block the, the entrance uh, of the hotel. The police uh, response outside. was slow, chaotic, and the police officers who went to the scene weren't very well armed. They had antiquated rifles, and I don't think there was an overarching plan. The fighting or the shooting is still going on. Um, we were in the main ballroom trying to get out. Obviously, we couldn't get through these windows. So, you know, on our Blackberries and iPhones, we could sort of track what was going on, and we soon realised that it wasn't just one crazy person because we didn't know what was going on. If it was just some person, revenge of a you know romantic revenge or whatever it was, we realised you know that there was attacks in the, in the subway or the train station and the Leopold Cafe and the other things. And reading about it, we realised it was you know, an organised terrorist attack. It became apparent very early on that this was going to be an extremely difficult and complex operation. There were hundreds of people trapped inside. If you can imagine, a huge luxury hotel, story after story, long row after row, room after room. And in each of those rooms, there could have either been terrorists or residents. So mounting any sort of rescue operation, even with a blueprint of the hotel, was going to be extremely difficult. What was really bizarre was the Indian police didn't call in the special service, the Indian police didn't have guns, and when they did try and go in at the very beginning, they were just massacred by the, the machine guns. We even, like, downloaded a architectural plan of the building and sent it to the embassies and saying, we're in this room, can someone come with a ladder and just get us out? And of course no one could come because, the, you know, they were shooting off the, off the top of the building and they were, you know, no one could get in or out of the building from where we were at least because we were 30 feet up on the ballroom level and then they worked out there were five people in the building. The terrorists had knocked out the electricity. We could hear explosions grenades going off inside the hotel. There were fires and it was pitch black and thick, acrid smoke bellowing from the hotel. Chaos and confusion for a second night as this Mumbai terror attack continues. Lashkaret Doiba would have known that if you attack Mumbai, you will get headlines. And to have a running siege for four or five days with no other news being reported around the world that's exactly the sort of attention this terrorist group craves. And no one was coming to get us. It was really quite bizarre. All the Indians was calling friends. And I said, look, guys, you've got to just text. We don't want them to know we're here and how many are here and what's going on. So please just go to text. Everyone just went silent. But we could hear people being um, killed, playing for their lives and then you know, being shot and the bodies were being thrown over the stairwell and they were piling up down below. We, we got all that from all the iPhones and stuff like that. And apparently, you know, they, they were calling rooms and saying it's safe to go out and they were killing people as they came out. So we got all the news reports, but we, we also, you know, got the reports that um, the fire was sort of wrapping around the building. India has one of the biggest 24-hour television news networks in the world. There were hundreds and hundreds of 
TV satellite trucks all along the front of the hotel. And these reporters were all in their stand-up positions reporting on what was happening behind them. They were being fired on as well. So every so often you'd hear a shot, everyone would die for cover. The police were really very worried about the rolling news coverage because everything that was happening was being transmitted live. And it was pretty obvious at the time that whoever was talking to these terrorists inside and guiding them could see what was happening. People were absolutely petrified. They were in this hotel waiting for the security services to come and get them. But if you're in that position, what do you do? Do you take a chance? Do you make a dash for safety? Do you run through the hotel? There's glass on the floor. There's smoke. It's pitch black. You can hear the explosions. You don't know who the terrorists are. And on top of all of this, you are absolutely terrified. It's unimaginable horror. About halfway through, when it was all going off and the fire was everywhere, the whole building kind of moved a bit because they were trying to wire the tower and explode the tower, the dome. And I, I noticed the chandelier in that room was... Um, clinking with the, all the vibrations in the building. And I said to some of my guys, let's move the Indian stuff because they were lying on the floor sleeping through it all because the reality is they weren't really that worried because they were after the Westerners. So we said to the guys, come on, get up, we've got to move you. And they were really pissed off, obviously. But literally within a minute or two, the big dome exploded and there was an explosion and the whole chandelier came crashing down. Alex, can you update us? We've heard some noise. Yeah, they, they seem to be uh, firing uh, grenades down the side of the thing, not actually... That would seem to be returning gunfire then. We thought someone would come through the windows and save us. We really thought that would happen. But then after two days and the fires above us and smoke coming, we realised no-one was coming for us, so that was it. Well, there was a lot of smoke around the front the front arch, but it's... it's uh, it was just one of those waiting games. My, my crew were a lot of Australians. They were making jokes just to try and make light of the situation. But it was looking pretty bleak. And it got to a point where the smoke was completely over us and coming down. And we were probably going to die of smoke asphyxiation before we died of burning from the fire. The smoke was around us, you know, and I had to text my ex-husband and my son, who was two and a half then, um, you know, saying that basically... Mummy's not going to make it home. I'm sorry, I love you guys, but I'm not going to make it. Again, it's, it's aimed all at the second floor. You know, the idea that your child wouldn't have a parent, but that could have been it, you know? Yeah, but it doesn't seem to be particularly directed inside the room. We all hugged each other and laid down to die, holding hands in a circle, my group. And literally a couple of minutes later, they'd thrown a grenade off the, the ceiling to hit someone below and it ricocheted or something happened. But anyway, out two of the windows smashed. So that we all jumped up and the smoke started to clear and we basically just smashed through the windows and took the long curtains that are from the you know, 16 or 18 foot curtains for the ballroom floor, tied them together in nautical knots because a lot of us are sailors um, and got half the people down that way. We're seeing some pictures now uh, from Mumbai of uh, people coming down some yes. steps, uh, civilians, clearly foreigners as well, being escorted uh, down some steps uh, in... Uh, By the time we got half the wedding and people down, 
um, they brought a ladder over and then some of us went down at the end. And within the past few minutes, a truckload of another 20 soldiers have arrived just in the last few minutes. Not quite sure. The siege was eventually broken by a group of extremely brave commanders, highly skilled specialists who had been flown in from Delhi. The evidence uh, as related to the militants is the language that has been intercepted by... Uh, These were the black cat commanders, equivalent to the SAS. Protests have replaced gunfire and grenades on the streets of Mumbai today. The city's residents, previously paralysed by fear, blame their government for lapses in security that allowed a gang of militants to terrorise... We managed to leave two days later. I live in New York, but we, I had a house in Australia, in Sydney, on Bondi Beach, and I just didn't really want to travel anywhere. And now the tales of the survivors are being told, and as these tales are told, people will listen, and, and people then, so will be And eight months in Australia, a very strange thing happened where my agent from New York said, look, there's an ad agency called Saks Agency that do all the high-end luxury hotels, and they just got their Taj campaign relaunch, you know, to do that. And they'd love you to do it. And I said to my agent, did they know I was a hostage? Did they know I was there? And my agent said, no. And I said, wow, what a strange thing. Out of every photographer on the planet, they choose me. And going back a few days before we went back, I must say I started to have panic attacks. So I did a decompression thing where I had to learn how to take the nastiest moments of the night um, in full Technicolor. You turn it black and white. You shrink it down and you put it in an imaginary box and you close the lid and you put it away in a drawer. And that kind of stops you triggering um, panic attacks that come from post-traumatic stress. So I took the entire crew that was suffering and that were there from that. There was one scene that we wrote where it was in the stairwell, which is the horrific, you know, where they were piling up the bodies. To see the staff celebrating the staircase with balloons and streamers and doing a hurrah, we photographed this scenario of them on the stairs and it was quite beautiful a lot of the trauma and the, the, the emotional damage kind of was cleared through that sort of cathartic moment of going back and, and photographing the campaign and feeling safe in those places again and I think the whole situation with the terrorists they were young boys they were being paged to kill people they were arguing they didn't often want to shoot people but I still to this day don't blame the kids holding the guns, I blame the people behind them. Over the four days from November the 26th to November the 29th, 2008, at least 175 people, including nine terrorists, died in the Mumbai attacks. It was subsequently discovered that the attack was directed remotely from Pakistan. For more on this podcast, log on to skynews.com forward slash storycast21. Escape the Taj Mumbai was recorded by Tom Gillespie. Writing, production and sound design was by Rob Mulhern. Storycast 21 will return in November 2021 with its final instalment of episodes.
Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Download episodes of previous shows. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.